Radio Bumbo. Número uno sa servicio público. Número uno sa puso ng mga Pilipino. Sa Radio Bumbo. Radio Philippines. Undoubtedly. This is Radio Bomba broadcasting to Coronadal in southern Mindanao in the Philippines. It's not a fancy place, cement floors, a few offices, and a broadcaster's booth. But it does get some unwanted attention. This is Bombo Radio Philippines, keeping the lead to serve. We receive treats, but as a broadcaster, we consider it as normal. Normal, guys. A uh, normal part of our duty, especially we, if we tackle issues uh, pertaining to graft in corruption. Welcome to the normal world of Philippine journalism. Normal, according to Haken Gaspi, the station manager, means innumerable death threats, a grenade attack, and two journalists killed. Recently, we received it from a group of uh, drug operators here in Corona. Uh, they got some uh, one engineer who engaged in buying and uh, selling of drugs. No? One of my anchor man received threats when we exposed that operation recently. But until now, until now, uh, we consider this a normal part of our, uh, our uh, duty as broadcasters. It's a deadly normalcy that spreads across the country. Stephen Omawis, reporter, guru, killed November 27, 2004, Tabuk, Kalinga. Jose Luis Villanueva, business editor, today, killed September 24, 2004, Pasay City. Christopher Misahon, Newscaster, GMA7, killed September On August 2, I received Mandurio, a funeral wreath, um, which was sent to my um, parents' home. It was not really where I live, but it was sent to my parents' home, which was worse, I guess, because it was my mother who received it. The day before the funeral wreath arrived, Glenda Gloria, a very much alive journalist in Manila, had written a story on links between the intelligence services and corrupt politicians. Someone didn't like the story, and someone wanted to remind her of the risk she was running. She didn't need the reminder. Well, just today, uh, another journalist was shot dead in Cebu. Gloria is head of an organization that attempts to protect Filipino journalists. It's not an easy job. After the fall of the dictator Fernand Marcos in the 1980s, it was thought that a new era of freedom was coming to the Philippines. But it hasn't turned out that way. Twenty years ago, there would be outrage when a journalist is killed. There's no rage at the moment. There's a much culture of impunity in this country, and that doesn't only apply to journalists. But the, the culture of impunity covers all. A lot of lawyers have been killed in the provinces defending ordinary people. A lot of teachers have been killed. A lot of doctors get killed by either the military or the police or by warlords. And the killings are not solved at all. Crime solution is, is almost, the rate here is almost nil. You're, you're using the word warlord. Truly, that's an exaggeration. No, it isn't. I thought so too. I thought warlordism was a Marcos era type of politics. But we have modern day warlords. They wear suits. They they went to business schools. Um, they are the second generation of of their fathers. They went to the best schools in the country and abroad. They come home and they campaign before their constituencies and promise reform. I'm, I'm a modern, I'm a reformist politician. 
because I've been schooled abroad, I will change the ways, but they don't. It's the type of politics that has led the Philippines to be one of the most corrupt countries in Southeast Asia, which is saying a lot. In fact, Transparency International, the anti-corruption watchdog, lists it as being roughly equivalent to Afghanistan or Libya for corruption. That's a ripe garden for investigative journalists, but a dangerous one. Philip Agustin, publisher, editor, Starline Times, killed May 10, 2005, Dingalan Aurora. Vincent Rodriguez, correspondent, DCMM, killed May 2005. This is Marlene Esperat on Radio Bomba in Mindanao, the station that considers it normal to have grenade attacks. Esperat's broadcast seems destined to create more problems. She's talking about how she has uncovered corruption in the nearby Department of Agriculture. The central government sends millions of pesos to the department in Mindanao, and then two or three bureaucrats, she claims, keeps 50% for themselves, and then they kick the rest back to corrupt politicians in Manila. It's typical stuff for Marlene Esperat. She's known throughout the country as the Erin Brockovich of the Philippines, a tough crusader against big corruption. And like the original Erin Brockovich, a huge, open personality. Nena Santos is her friend. Marlene has, uh, uh, is a loud person. She speaks uh, loudly. She makes her presence uh, felt in a room. And uh, she tries to, to befriend everybody, but uh, she speaks her mind. Uh, and uh, what uh, I have uh, observed was uh, when she's around, uh, well, people are... Uh, trying to, some are trying to listen to her, some do not. Her family agrees. James, her son, is 10 years old. She sings better, she dances better. That's what I like about my mom. Marlene Esperad's daughter, Rinche. She's very good in singing and dancing. She likes jazz music. She plays piano and guitar. And also, like the original Aaron Brockovich, there is the tension of a woman trying to balance her domestic and professional lives between uncovering corruption among high officials and spending time with her family. Sometimes I'm mad that she spend more time uh, on her work than us. Um, sometimes I think that she already forgot us, but she only gives us support uh, financial she all, she only give us uh, the needs but the love that we need sometimes that's was not given to us but i understand that her work is very important because it's for the people it's for all the people especially for the farmers farmers option to buy back Marlene Esprat's big personality and spirit mean that all of her family and friends use the present tense when they speak of her. It's ironic, because last Easter, just as she was sitting down with her family, there was a knock at her door. It was dinner time. They were around the dining room table, and a young man came in. Rinche describes him. Twenties, more than twenties, between twenty or thirties. What was he wearing? Shorts, slippers, shirts, and cup. When he went to see your mom in the dining room, how long did he talk to her for? 
just greeted her good evening. Then when my mom faced uh, faced him, then he shot her. I shout for help, but no one came. Then I ran to my mom and again shout for help, but still no one came for help. That I w- I was trying to ask that my mom will be uh, will bring to the hospital, but. No one came. He saw my mum shot on the head by the man after greeting her. What did you do after that? Did you run after the man? I ran after him. I ran after him. But I lost him. That's all. That's all. George Esperat was Marlene's husband. I saw my wife already lying in this chair with uh, one hole in this... Uh, so I thought it was she, she, she was hit here because the blood is here. So I told them that the tricycle will bring her to the hospital. But when I saw the hole here and it's, it's not already breathing, so I just uh, get her. I sat down in the uh, flooring. Uh, I told her, that's why Sabigo Marlene, I told you to stop this. Because this is very, it's, it's very hard. I am always telling her to stop it. There's no good in in doing that. She told me she's willing to die, and you know she's very brave. George Esperat now sits on the porch of the family house. He sits alone. His wife murdered his children taken and put into witness protection. He sits there in love and in anger, anger with the wife he loves so much for endangering herself and the children. He sits on the same porch where one of the men who helped to shoot his wife played chess with James, their ten-year-old son, as a way of ingratiating himself with the family to find out where Marlene was. Earlier that day, the shooter had even gone to the house to kill Marlene. He'd lost his nerve, so he'd asked for a drink of water and then left. He returned three hours later and shot Marlene Esperat in front of her family. Marlene Esperat, columnist, Midland Review, killed March 24, 2005, Takurong City, Sultan Kudarat. Twelve hundred kilometers away over a coffee in a shopping mall in downtown Manila, another journalist, another story of menace. Red Batario also runs an organization that tries to help Filipino journalists. I was uh, covering uh, Mindanao um, on a special assignment for a newspaper, and I was doing a story about uh, the involvement of soldiers in illegal mining activities in an island. And somehow they figured out that I was the guy who was writing all these things, and they uh, found out where I was staying. And uh, when I went back to the island uh, the next day, they followed me and they boarded the same boat where I was. And then they surrounded me when the boat was somewhere in the middle of the ocean and they cocked their rifles and asked me, okay, what do we do now? We talk in a shopping mall in Manila. Amidst the air conditioning, there are signs for sails and fountains. The mall is the symbolic midpoint of the city. Two kilometers down a heavy potholed highway jammed with traffic and posters half the size of football fields is the Makati area full of international hotels with enormous chandeliers and wall-to-wall carpets. Go the other way, and you come to one of the biggest slums in Asia, 
the ironically named Smoky Mountain, a literal mountain of garbage surrounded by tens of kilometers of shacks made out of plastic sheeting and waste wood piled one on top of the other. It's these two sides that give political murder some of its dynamic in this country. A rich, wealthy class of brooks almost no challenge to their power, no matter what the profession, and the poverty, which can produce desperate gunmen. How much does it cost to hire a hitman? Uh, in Pagadian City, for example, it can range from as low as 2,000 pesos to as high as 15,000 pesos. In American dollars? Uh, 2,000 pesos would be about $20. You can hire a hitman in some of these rural provinces for 20 bucks? Yeah, that's right. That's right. And these are young guys. And these usually are people who have no work, young people who are uh, engaged in petty crime. Journalists get killed, people get killed, but nobody gets arrested or gets uh, prosecuted. Or if somebody gets arrested, it's the small fish, it's the small fry, and nobody gets to the boss in mind. And uh, so, so it's just a cycle. It keeps on uh, repeating itself. So uh, when people think that they can get away with it, so, so they'll do it. Out of all the journalists that have been killed here in the Philippines over the last five years, how many successful convictions of their killers have there been? None, except one. But again, he's just a gunman. My name is Jerry Cabayan. I worked in a furniture shop. Tell me what you did. When I came close to the house, I stared through the cyclone wire fence to make sure that Marlene Esperat was there. I saw her. So I went inside their store where there was a table and Marlene was there with a kid eating and she was sitting down. I, I went inside like five steps from the door. Did she say anything to you before you shot her? I greeted her, good evening madam, and then she looked at me, stood up, and then I shot her. A Philippine prison is not a pleasant place. The Gensan Municipal Jail stands alone on the outskirts of a nearby town. It's hidden away among the brush, but there's little shade, and the sun beats down on the corrugated iron roof while dust blows all around it. To get inside, there's a rusty gate where the lines of visitors are now searched. Cowboy music plays to entertain the board guards. Inside the prison are Jerry Kabayang and Randy Gracia. These are the men who have confessed to killing Marlene Esperat. Jerry Kabayang pulled the trigger of the gun, and Randy had been the lookout. He had looked out by playing chess with her 10-year-old son. They are two little men. They've never been in prison before, they have never killed anyone before, and they have never, or so they claim, committed a crime before. They both say they were approached by intermediaries of two government officials who wanted Marlene Esperat dead. Jerry says he took the job to pay the hospital bills for his sick mother. I, I threw away the gun. I was shaking and scared, and we were scared that someone might be running after us. We were so scared that even if we were driving so fast, it, it felt like it was so slow. You shot a woman, defenseless woman, with no gun, in front of her children. Of course I felt bad, because she was a woman. But we really needed the money, and that's why we still did it. It was actually the first time that I killed another person. And I wouldn't have killed them except that I needed the money for an operation for my mother. Someone said there was a person willing to pay money if we killed someone, and we were willing to do it. So... They gave the money to us, and we did it. 
Randy and Jerry might be frightened little men, but they did do a remarkable thing. Randy Gracia, the fellow who played chess with Marlene's son, confessed a few days after the killing. He confessed voluntarily with no incentive or reward. He said his conscience was bothering him too much. So now the two of them wait in prison. They claim, and the police believe them, that the people who arranged the shooting of Marlene Esprat are very big forces indeed, big enough that the children of Marlene Esprat are now hidden away in witness protection, big enough that Nina Santos, Marlene Esprat's friend and lawyer, has herself received death threats. Somebody told me to, to lay off from the case or else. Okay, So that is a, a real threat to me because the person... Uh, who relayed to me the uh, the the statement is uh, is also very close to me. Actually, he's he's also a client. Why are you doing this? Well, I, I made a promise to Marlene uh, during the burial. Uh, I really made it uh, an open declaration that I really helped the family to get justice. Nina Santos also has three children. She's in her mid fifties, friendly and full of humor. She used to be a quiet country lawyer. Then Marlene Esprat entered her life, and now, with the death of her friend, she's taken over the campaign to make sure that the men behind Esprat's murder are brought to justice. She works for free. Her days are spent doing the legal paperwork and driving to the court to make sure that it is filed properly. On the way, she and her bodyguard check for bombs and ambushes, and Santos talks of who she thinks arranged her friend's murder. DA officials that were implicated in this case, uh, they were the uh, respond. They were the per the individuals, the persons responsible in the graft and corruption practices in the Department of Agriculture. So when Merlin was able to find out uh, the uh, graft and corrupt practices that they have, well, that really got them angry. You know, we believe that it's really the the sole motive of uh, silencing her because uh, she knew too much. She stepped on the shoes of the, on the toes of uh, a lot of people. Santos, uh, the private prosecutor in this case, uh, criminal case number 2568. This is regional courthouse number 12 in the city of Takrong, southern Mindanao, where Nena Santos has to file most of the work related to the case. It's not an impressive place. There are some cement benches for the judge and lawyers and a coat of yellowing paint and stacks of forgotten ballot boxes that line the back of the room. The air of general decay matches what has happened to the Esprat case. Randy Gracie and Jerry Kabayang, the hitman, named two officials in the Department of Agriculture as the masterminds behind the murder. These were the same officials that Marlene Esprat had claimed were taking money and paying kickbacks to corrupt politicians in Manila. A case was prepared against the officials but mysteriously it was dropped by a judge who then retired soon afterwards. Then files went missing in the case. Then there were more delays while Nena Santos tried to get the case reopened and moved to a more neutral venue. In the midst of this confusion, a key witness was discovered, Sergeant Roy Barua, a former bodyguard in the Department of Agriculture who claimed that he had arranged the murder on orders of the two corrupt officials. He too is now in secret witness protection and after days of negotiations, we met in a nondescript office somewhere in the Philippines. I came here to tell the truth behind the death of Marlene Esprat. And what is the truth? 
ang nagpapatay po kay Marlene Esperat. The people behind the death of Marlene Esperat are employees of the Department of Agriculture. I did not kill Marlene Esperat, but I know the whole story behind the murder because I was asked to look for a hitman. Now, when she was asking you to, to uh, kill this woman, was she asking it like as a joke or was she asking you, like, I, you know, I must have it? How was she asking no, they were serious, because the grudge they're holding against Esperat is too deep, getting into their nerves because their reputations were damaged because of Mrs. Esperat. All the anomalies and affairs they've been doing in the Department of Agriculture were blurted out in public. Sergeant Brewer is able to provide exact dates, figures and details about the negotiations between the alleged planners and the men who hired Jerry and Randy, the actual hitman. It's remarkable testimony. Barua claims he didn't even realize who Marlene Esperat was before the murder. I didn't know her when she was alive, but when she was killed, I came to know her because of the news on TV and public discussions about her. My conscience urged me because I thought it was nothing at all, but then I was bothered with my conscience. This is the Department of Justice in downtown Manila. It's an old Spanish colonial building with tall marbled halls and echoing staircases. The case against two allegedly corrupt civil servants for the murder of an investigative journalist seems to be very strong. Three witnesses, three confessions. But the case has been plagued with mistrials, mysterious acquittals and delays. Well, uh, the process is a little bit slow, really. But uh, there are many reasons uh, for that. Uh, for example, in the case of this Isperat, there was even an acquittal, which we were able to overturn and transfer the trial. This is no huge surprise, says the man who's in charge of seeing that murderers are convicted in the Philippines, Secretary Raul Gonzalez, the Minister of Justice. He says the courts are overstretched and lack the proper resources. But Raul Gonzalez, who was a prominent lawyer during the Marcos era, considers that the killing of journalists in general has been overstated. Well, there had been uh, some journalist uh, killings that have happened here. I think we cannot keep that. But the uh, accuracy has to be questioned also. Not every journalist who died here or had been killed died because of their profession. How do you mean? Well, there were journalists who were killed because of blood affairs. In uh, my place, for example, in Ililo City, I know one specific case of a supposed uh, broadcaster who was gunned down because of a love triangle, not because of his being a, a broadcaster. When it's pointed out that in the last five years there have been 76 journalists killed and only one person has been convicted, Mr. Gonzalez knows who to blame, the media. I would like them to remove the thinking that they have, perhaps, uh, which has been fun by over-sensationalism in media, that uh, we do not do our job here to prosecute uh, uh, wrongdoers, whether they involve journalists or uh, murderers or, or rapists or whatever, because we do. In October, Secretary Gonzalez's department was finally able to secure a second conviction against the murder of journalists. They managed to sentence Randy Gracia and Jerry Cabayang to life in prison for the killing of Marlene Esperat. 
It took them a pretty long time. When you consider that Randy Gracia had confessed to the killing and had come forward voluntarily 18 months before that. But strangely, even though the prosecution had confessions and witnesses linking the murder with two allegedly corrupt civil servants, the court refused to hear any evidence that would involve senior officials with the murder. So while the hitmen, Randy Gracia and Cherry Kabayang, sit in jail, the witnesses, Sergeant Roy Barua and Marlene Espratt's family, still live anonymously in witness protection. But Nena Santos, Marlene Espratt's friend and lawyer, has responded to this news by rolling up her sleeves and starting a whole new prosecution against the allegedly corrupt civil servants. And for good measure, she's decided to file a case against the state prosecutor of the Philippines. Recently, two men were discovered watching her offices. So Nena Santos checks over her shoulder and under her car every day. She's now been seriously threatened several times, but she still refuses to give up the case. What are we going to do if we live in fear? as if we're not living a anymore. We don't want that the impunity of, uh, of uh, just killing anybody would continue. If we will not rise up to the occasion, who would? Because we are now put in this situation. If, if not me, who? Just before I went to the Philippines, another journalist was murdered. Then the day I arrived, another one was killed. And since then, while I've been editing, four more have been murdered. None of the killers has been caught.